I am so incredibly grateful for Second Presbyterian Church and particularly for Amen. Uh, I started coming here maybe, I can't even remember, 15 years ago at least. And the, the teaching that Second Presbyterian has provided through Amen has had more impact in my life spiritually than anything else in my life. And as I told Mike, I don't know if, it, uh, if I've got you know, much of anything of value to say to you guys today, but if I can help or contribute positively to Amen in any way, I'm happy to do it. And so I, I, I'm here, I guess, because I was invited, but more so uh, I'm here because um, I'm deeply grateful for what this church um, has provided to me. And so uh, thank you for that. Also, thank you for uh, making me look like a big shot at my house. We were at the dinner table last night, and um, I told the kids that uh, I'd be at Amen this morning, and my 13-year-old daughter was really impressed, like, wow, you're going to be at Amen. And then so her first question, of course, is, well, how many people are going to be there? And so I said, well, you know, when Sandy talks, there's about 500 people there, and, <laughs> and w when your dad talks, there's going to be about 75 people there. So uh, that burst their bubble pretty quickly. Um, so, about my family, I'm, I'm married uh, to my wife, Kelly. We have been married for 22 years, and we now have five daughters. And um, one of the things that I've learned, yeah, pray for me, um, we're, we're leaving tomorrow morning to take our second daughter off to the University of Arkansas. So, uh, woo pig suey, that's right. Uh, so, one of the things that I've learned in, in 50 years is... Um, in the most significant moments of life is when you want to be the most intentional and you want to be the most thoughtful about exactly what you're going to do. And clearly, uh, the birth of your children are one of those most significant moments. And so um, we were pregnant. My wife was pregnant with our first child back in 1994. And as we were preparing for that birth, uh, I knew that I wanted to be intentional about, about the birth. And, and so on May 16th, 1994, at the Baptist Hospital, my wife delivered our first daughter, May Elizabeth Montague. And if you've, if you've been in that situation before, of course, the baby's born and the, the nurse um, takes the child and uh, cleans it up and wraps it and then, and then hands it, um, in this case, hands it to me, the father. And I knew... Uh, the way that I wanted to make it intentional is I decided that I wanted um, the very first words that this child would ever hear to be the most significant and important words in all of history. And so as the nurse handed me the, the little baby girl, I, I took May in my arms for the very first time and drew her close to me and I very gently leaned down and whispered in her ear, May Montague. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And, of course, we did that uh, three more times at the birth of, uh, of the rest of our children. And then when our last child we adopted at age two and a half, uh, I learned enough Chinese to be able to say, uh, Jesus is alive um, to her when we, when we adopted her. And so if that's true for us as humans, I'm certain that um, in those most significant moments that God also intends to be incredibly intentional about what it is that he's doing. And I, I can't think of a more significant moment in all of human history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And I, I feel certain that at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at the appearing of Jesus Christ to the world, that God himself was incredibly intentional about how that was to happen. And so I thought it would be helpful to us if we took a look at that story. It's in John chapter 20. Uh, if you want to turn there, great. I'll read to you a section of that. But in the first 10 verses of John chapter 20 uh, is the story, of course, where Mary Magdalene goes to the, uh, to the tomb when it's still dark out. We can relate. It's still dark out, and she finds the tomb has been rolled away, and the body is not there, and she is sad and weeping. And she returns back to Peter and John, and she says that they've taken the Lord. And at that point, Peter and John run to the tomb. Uh, and they go in and they find that that's exactly true, that there is no body there. And then Peter and John leave the scene and head back, and Mary Magdalene stays at the tomb. And it's at that moment that God himself announces to the world that he is alive. And so I'm going to read to you John 20, uh, beginning in chapter, excuse me, beginning in verse 11 through 18. The first appearance of Jesus Christ, verse 11, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, she had said, and that he had said these things to her. Uh, this past several months, I've been reading through the book of John, and I came to that passage uh, not long ago, and it, it just struck me really for the first time how odd it was that when the God of all creation um, comes to earth to provide atonement for our sins, and he validates that atonement by being raised from the dead, that in that particular moment that he announces to all the world that he is the one true living God, that he does it singularly, alone in a garden, with a woman who has been demon-possessed. One of the things that you, know, you learn from, from studying um, history is we, we realize that women in that culture had very few, if any, rights, that simply because of their gender, they were marginalized. In fact, um, a woman could not, even, did, could not even give a valid testimony in court. They were, their, their testimony was worthless in the court of law. And on top of that, it's not just a woman who's been marginalized simply because of gender, but it's a woman who's been marginalized because of gender and who has a reputation of being demon-possessed and all that comes with that. And to that person, Jesus Christ presents himself alive before anyone else. 
He comes not to the rich, not to the powerful, not to kings and queens. He comes not with pomp and circumstance. He comes not with trumpets blaring. He doesn't come. He simply comes unnoticed, actually, right? She thinks of him as being a gardener. He comes unnoticed, humbly, to the most marginalized. And again, I think that's incredibly intentional at this particularly significant moment. And so what do we learn at the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The first thing that we learn and we cannot forget is that Jesus Christ's resurrection from the the dead proves unequivocally that he is the one true living God and that all of the promises that are contained about the coming Savior are found in Jesus Christ and that there is one and only way of redemption and hope and that is through faith in Jesus Christ and no way else. And it also comes, this resurrection tells us that Um, an opportunity to be made right with God is available to us to the very last breath of our lives. That we have an opportunity to live in heaven forever and ever with the one true living God, and that can be certain. We can be certain of that because of Jesus' appearance to Mary in the garden on the morning of his resurrection. That's what we learn about the resurrection. The second thing we learn about the resurrection is that Jesus Christ has come He has come to alleviate all suffering, most certainly and primarily eternal suffering. But he has also come to alleviate the suffering of those who are marginalized, those who are on the outskirts, those who have no real witness, those who have no real voice in society. He comes to those people. And he intentionally came to those people first, I think, to remind us that as we first have faith in Jesus Christ, Uh, have adoption into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we too also take on the mission of alleviating all suffering, eternal suffering and the suffering of the most marginalized. Um, There's a lot of marginalized people in our city. Uh, Typically today, the marginalized in our city aren't simply because of gender. But often in our city today, the most marginalized are those that are marginalized because of race, because of economic status, because of zip code. And, um, you know, interestingly, if you think about it, where is a, where is a gathering place of marginalized people? You know, you read, you read the Bible and you recognize a lot of people gathered at the well. You know, people had to go and get water. And so if you wanted to, if you wanted to meet people of all types, you'd go to the well and find them there. In our society today, you know where we can easily find many, many marginalized? In our city schools. Schools are the gathering place of of what um, our society would call the marginalized. So this is a picture of uh, uh, some demographics from Shelby County Schools. Uh, Now, with the municipalities pulled out, Shelby County Schools essentially is the old Memphis City Schools, right? And we've got... Um, essentially slightly over 100,000 students in Shelby County Schools, uh, of which 83% are African-American, 92%, rurally 93% you would call minority, 7% white. The poverty rate, um, children that are attending schools in our our city's um, schools, 87% of them come from families that live beneath the poverty line. Uh, Average family income of students in Shelby County Schools is roughly $35,000 a year. Uh, there are a, a, the little squiggly line approximately. I'm not exactly sure how many schools there are in our, in our city. It's roughly 212 schools that employ 6,800 teachers. And of those 100,000 students, 
by the time they get to be seniors in high school, only 5% of them are what are deemed as college ready. And what college ready means essentially is the definition that people accept as college ready means that you score a 20 on all four sections of the ACT to be deemed as college ready. Uh, and on our, in our high schools, kids are graduating, only 5% of the students are graduating are making a 20 on all four sections of the ACT. Uh, so uh, a, deeply, um, a deeply marginalized community. And so uh, if Jesus goes to the marginalized, if his first appearance after his resurrection is to the marginalized, I think, it's, I think it's clear to assume that we too are called to go to the marginalized, to go to the people who unfairly are moved out, who unfairly um, are not given a voice, who unfairly are often not um, given an education. And so the question would be, if we are people who are to go to the marginalized as Christ did, how do we go? How, how does the Christian go into places um, uh, these marginalized places um, in our city schools. So uh, I think one place that we begin is just to look at the story, the gospel story of creation, fall, and redemption to give us a, a, a framework for how the Christian thinks about teaching in our urban schools. So if we look at creation uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's several things that we can take from that that I think are absolutely essential. The first thing that we understand is um, uh, that we have this great creation mandate that in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, where it says that God created man in his image, in the image of God he created them male and female, and he, and he blessed them, and he said to them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth and subdue it. And what we realize is, is that God has created us with a mandate, with a creation mandate. And what that looks like is, it looks like that God in day one, excuse me, in chapters one and two in Genesis, he created the, the, the physical universe in six days, but he left the universe with great potential, not completely formed, not completely developed. And he, and he then created man and woman to be his ambassadors, his um, representatives on earth. And he gave you and me the mandate to continue the work of creation that God, created, that God began in Genesis 1 and 2. And he says to us now, I want you to continue the work of creation as my representatives, where God created heaven and earth, the physical world, he now gives to us man, now his people, Christians, he gives us the responsibility to now go, now we don't go and create uh, planets and stars and these sorts of things, but what he calls us to do is go and create civilizations and cities and societies and families and to continue that work of creation in our world today. And then what he gives us, just like he gives natural laws to govern the physical world that he has created, he gives to his people, me and to you, he gives us his word filled with what you might call norms. And he says, as you continue the work of creation in the world, I want you to continue to create using these norms in every square inch of creation that you go. So, in other words, as you build families, build families based on these norms as an act of creation, as an act of filling the world. When you go into your businesses, build businesses based on these norms that God has set out in his world. And this is how you, I want you to create a, a, a civic world, an economic world. When you go into schools, these are the norms that we use. And as you create schools, you build schools based on these norms. This is the... 
Um, this is the creation mandate that is given to us. And what it says is that God's norms, God has authority over every square inch of creation. And that means his norms that he has created and communicated to us have validity and have a place in every aspect of society. Even those, even those parts of society that have no interest in God's word, have no interest in God himself, God has authority over those places and his norms are given to us for us to press into those places. And so what it means to me is we begin the, as we go in and doing the work, um, uh, work in schools, it means that we actually belong, the Christian belongs even in public urban schools. The Christian has a role there. A, the Christian has a voice there because God has given us norms that are to be applied there. That's one thing we learn from creation. The second thing that we learn from creation um, is this great idea of, humil- of humility. Right? You read the creation story and there's one thing that comes from it and it, is, and it is this. This is his story, it's not my story. Or said differently, um, we read the creation story and we realize the most important person in my life is not me and the most important person in your life is not you. The most important person in our lives is, is God himself and his son Jesus Christ. And we do not, um, he creates us, we don't create him. We don't invent and make up a God. We serve him. He does not serve us in essence. And so what, we, what, what the creation story tells us, particularly as we think about how we work in schools, is that we work in schools with a great sense of humility. Right? We work in schools recognizing that um, we are here to do his work. We're not here to do our work. He is the one that drives this. I, I we are not the ones that drive this. Um, we tell, um, I work in an organization called the Memphis Teacher Residency, and, and we, have teach, we recruit and train teachers and, and uh, send them into the lowest performing schools in our city. And um, we begin with this point. When we train teachers, we begin from this standpoint, not um, how do you write a lesson plan. We're, what we begin with is how do you enter schools on day one? And you enter schools on day one this way. You go find every custodian in that building and you find out their name and every day you walk down the hall you you look them straight in the eye and you call them by name and you say I hope you have a great day and um, you go to every staff meeting and you sit on the front row um, you never say one negative thing about a principal if you're in a conversation with other teachers that are saying anything negative about a principal or a school you don't you don't participate uh, you don't comment negatively and actually what you do is you think of anything positive you can say about that school and that administrators and you inject that positive comment into the middle of that conversation and what we do what, um, so what the Christian does in these schools is puts on this um, clothing of humility, recognizing that our role in these schools is to be a blessing and a servant, not to come in with all of the answers. The third thing that we learn from creation is this idea, very simple but very powerful, um, that um, God really did create um, all people with his image, and that informs us in two particular ways. Number one, it says, is that it means to us that every single person is, has equal value, Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and poor have this alike. The Lord God is the maker of them all. Every single child in the city is made in the image of God and has absolutely the same value and dignity before a holy God. And it means then that every single child in the city has the same right and obligation to equal and quality education. It also means to us that because every child is born in the image of God, it means that they have incredible potential for learning. 
Every single child in this city, regardless of their zip code, has an amazing potential within them to learn at a very high level. And what that does to the teacher in schools, it does two things. One, it provides a, a worshipful motivation for being in classrooms that infuses a sense of energy and momentum to the teacher. The second thing that that thought does, that Christian thought of being made in the image of God, the second thing that that does is it gives an incredible amount of what I would call self-efficacy to the teacher. So let me give you an example. I lose my keys all the time, okay? Uh, and I don't know where they are and I can't find them. And, and so usually what I'll do is I'll say, uh, I'll talk to my wife and I'll say, Kelly, um, do you know where my keys are? And of course, everybody knows what, that key, what that's code for, right? When I ask my wife, do you know where my keys are? What I'm really saying is go find my keys, please, right? And so, uh, but I'll go looking around the house for my keys. And uh, if, I, um, if I don't have any idea where they are, I'll start pulling open drawers, right? Or looking in, uh, looking in cabinets or looking on my dresser or whatever. But if I don't have, um, if, I don't, if I'm not sure of where they are, then I'm just doing kind of a cursory look. I'm just moving here, there, looking around. But if I'm certain, if I'm absolutely sure I put those keys in that drawer, then I'm going to pull that drawer out and I'm going to take out every piece of junk that's in that drawer until I find the keys in that drawer, right? That's called self-efficacy. I am certain those keys are in that drawer and I will find those keys before, uh, before I walk out of this room. When we as teachers understand that every child in these schools is born in the image of God, and has potential because of God's innate spirit within them, then, we, then, 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 then that teacher, that Christian teacher, teaches that child the way that I look for keys when I'm certain they're in that drawer. I will not stop until that child learns because I am certain that that child can learn. This is what creation teaches us about how we enter into, some of what creation teaches us about how we enter into schools. Um, this is Phil Tuminaro. Uh, Phil is from Poughkeepsie, New York. Uh, talks like he's from Poughkeepsie, New York. He's now, the, um, uh, he's now an English teacher at Kingsbury High School. And Phil, um, maybe every class, that's probably an exaggeration, on most every class, the last minute of all six periods of every day at Kingsbury High School, when the students have finished their lesson and they've packed up and they're waiting for the bell to ring, Phil gets everybody quiet and everybody, all eyes are on Phil and Phil will lift up his hands and he'll say to the classroom of 25 juniors at Kingsbury High School, he'll say, gang, I want you to know that I deeply love you and I care about you. And when you leave school today at 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to stay here for another two hours, and I'm going to prepare a lesson for you tomorrow. And when I go home tonight to my wife, I'm going to tell her about you and what you did today. And I'm going to prepare for you for tomorrow, and I'm going to pray for you for tomorrow, and I will be here tomorrow because I want to be here with you tomorrow. And if you don't hear it from anyone else in your whole life, I want you to know that I love you and I care about you and I cannot wait to see you tomorrow morning. Go have a great day. And the kids walk out the door, head off to their next class. That's what a teacher does who recognizes that um, every single child in that classroom is a child of God 
who deserves a quality education and deserves someone to look him dead straight in the eye and say, I love you and I care about you and I can't wait to see you tomorrow. That's what we learn about creation and teaching. Now, um, we also learn a good bit um, from the fall. Um, the fall has come into a good creation and has stained our world. And oftentimes when I, um, uh, if I go to a, you know, a meeting like this or a, a Sunday school class or any group really, uh, I might show a slide about performance and, or uh, you know, an academic achievement gap and I'll often ask the question, I'm not going to do it for you to answer right now, but I'll often ask the question, why do you think we have this, um, why are only 5% of students graduating from Memphis City Schools college ready? And inevitably, the answer that I most often get is something to do with the family. Well, it's the, fa it's the family's responsibility, or they're not getting this from the family, and so on. And, and while I agree that families are the single most important contributing factor to a, a child's well-being, I also think it's a really good question to ask this question, if that makes sense. Um, if a cause of the academic achievement gap is the family, then this is a great question. What's the cause of the cause? I, I agree that that's a big cause. I'm just curious about why that's the cause. How do we get here? And I think, it's, I think from a Christian perspective, it's incredibly important to ask that question and to begin to answer that question. And, you know, just a, a, a brief review of history would say, um, you know, we had 300 years of slavery. Uh, and then following the Civil War in 1896, there was this landmark case called Plessy v. Ferguson that legalized from the Supreme Court what they would call separate but equal. All the while knowing that we held dearly to the idea of separate, but had no intention of holding dearly to the idea of equal. And so then we had, oh, 60 years, let's call it, um, of legalized racism. Uh, Jim Crow laws. Uh, where... Um, We created structures that were terribly unequal and terribly unfair. Um, we practiced economically things like, if you're in the banking business, you might be familiar with a term called redlining, which was basically um, bankers and the government would take maps and draw a red line around generally African-American neighborhoods and say, you cannot loan money to a neighborhood that's within those red lines. At the same time, we as a nation um, legally um, infuse what are called covenant restrictions into um, new developments that would specifically state that any home bought in this neighborhood could not be bought by an African American. This is going on in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s. And, and what we begin to realize is 
as a nation, we structurally kept out minorities from participating in one of the most important wealth building assets of the 20th century, which is home property. And then, and so those are very intentional um, aspects that we infuse that um, um, have contributed to these cities that, are, that have large pockets of poverty. And there were unintentional things that were done, right? Just through technology and globalization, we had jobs move out of cities. We had um, agricultural workers move into the cities at the same time that jobs were moving out of the city. And because of an inability to accumulate wealth and even have simple things like transportation, it made it very difficult. It's called spatial mismatch, where large concentrations of people in poverty didn't, weren't in any, any way in close proximity to where the jobs were. We've seen it here in our city, International Harvester, right? And these, these large factories have, um, have Firestone plant and Hunter Fan Company, right? These large, the Defense Depot, these places have closed and moved away and left our cities in, across the country in pockets of poverty without any real ability to get to where the jobs were. And so what we, what we often end up with now um, are, you know, here's, here's Memphis. We often end up here with a community. This is um, uh, a picture of employment, and the, the darker the shade is the higher the number, the lighter the shade is the lower the number. So when we're talking about unemployment here, you see that we've got these very high, um, very large pockets of high unemployment in the south and north of our city. Uh, while the corridor running through the middle of the city and broadening as we move east uh, has generally low unemployment. Uh, this is a, a graph of um, single parent families, single parent households. Again, the darker the shade brown, the higher the percentage. And so again, you see in our communities in the north and south of Memphis, um, uh, we see a city that is deeply divided from um, from a class standpoint, if you will. Uh, this now is reversed. This is household income. So now the darker shade represents the higher income. And you can see the corridor running narrowly, well, downtown, and then running narrowly through the center of the city. And then as we get east, it broadens. Um, and so you see a city that's very, very divided um, uh, socially and economically. And um, I've shown this before once. You may have seen it. Um, uh, this is the, the income uh, graph of our city, and on top of that is a circle that represents the location of every um, public high school in Memphis, and then the number within that circle is the average ACT score of that high school. So you can see in, in the dark shaded areas that are the higher income neighborhoods, you see the highest ACT scores, uh, and in the um, lighter shade or lowest income neighborhoods, you see the um, the lowest, um, uh, lowest ACT scores. I, I think as Christians, it's very important for us to recognize um, before we simply call out families as being the responsible party for low academic achievement, that we recognize that there has, there has been... Um, hundreds of years of structural um, inputs that have contributed to large pockets of poverty that now contribute to um, very low performing schools. 
And then within these communities, cultural norms grow up that continue to perpetuate that poverty. And so what we see is what, what our present reality in our city, it doesn't really match the picture of creation. And it certainly doesn't match the picture of the redeemed community of God, the kingdom of God that is to come, um, which is a, um, a community of people living together with peace in peace and dignity. Um, a couple of things I think are also interesting. Um, we work in particular schools, and uh, this is third grade reading levels from a year ago. Uh, in the schools that we're working in, um, so that's Kingsbury, Treadwell, Hanley, Sherwood Elementary, uh, about 10 to 15% of the students in third grade are reading at a third grade level in those schools. Obviously, um, a, a year or so ago, I was talking to Lee Burns, cl clearly every third grader at PDS is 100% are reading, at, third graders are reading at a third grade level or higher. And so you see the massive gap in, in this. Uh, I also looked at ACT scores. So uh, the average ACT score of the high schools that we are working in, uh, which is East, Kingsbury, Douglas, Melrose High, uh, the average ACT in those schools is somewhere between a 14 to 16, 14 to 15, really. Um, uh, at MUS, a couple of years ago, the average ACT was a 28.3. And so you see that um, um, we, have these huge, we have these huge disparities. And so the fall has deeply impacted and deeply affected our cities and particularly our schools. Uh, the thing that I think is interesting that, to, to note about this, one, one last thing, is that when you have this deep divide in academic achievement, it perpetuates um, isolation and segregation. Because here, here's what I think often happens. When we have this deep divide, what ends up happening is fear is created. And fear is created in the lower educated, the 14s and 15s. They um, will often feel ashamed, uh, embarrassed, uh, and as a result, they want to be um, there's a natural tendency to want to remain isolated. For those that are the higher educated, they also have fear um, and misunderstanding. Uh, and, and just as the lower in, educated can often feel ashamed and undignified, the higher educated can feel awfully proud and also then want to be isolated. And so you see how the fall deeply impacts our city, even down into our psyche that makes us feel either less than we should about ourselves or makes us feel more than we should about ourselves and drives us to want to be isolated, which is the exact opposite of the picture of the kingdom of God, where we will have people from all nations and races and tribes coming together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, here's, here's my point of all this. As Christians, we have a picture of the coming kingdom of God and we know what that looks like and we recognize our city today does not look like that and I believe we recognize, I hope, one of the points I'm trying to make is unequal and unfair education is one of the key and primary drivers to preventing our communities from looking like the kingdom of God that we are so certain we're going to see one day because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I think as we, want to, as we want to be a movie trailer that displays what the coming kingdom of God is going to look like, 
in that we have a community that lives together in peace and dignity and with respect for one another, the pr one of the primary ways that we accomplish that is by equalizing education. If, if we were on a more equal playing field educationally, people would be able to live and respect and honor one another with peace and dignity more so than we do today. This is why education is such a critical issue to the Christian because of the implications it has to our being able to demonstrate the kingdom of God to our community, which is what our creation mandate is in Genesis chapter 1. All right, so what, um, where do we go from here? We'll, we'll begin to close out with this. Um, there is redemption coming, and that gives us a great sense of hope, right? Um, we know, as Martin Luther King says, the arc of history bends towards justice. And so we know that one day all things will be made right. And um, as Jesus uh, told Mary to go back to the disciples and tell them that he was alive, right, he then went to his disciples and he sent them out with a, with a, on a mission, right? He sent them on a mission. He gave them strategies and said, this is what I'm asking you to do. And, and so um, in education, I think a Christian way to think about education has three components of redemption that, that are important that, we'll, that I'll touch on quickly. Um, First of all, it's this. It is that character matters deeply. The Christian teachers enter into schools recognizing that it is not good enough to be an outstanding teacher. This is as much a cultural issue as it is an academic issue. And so the Christian teacher understands that character matters deeply. And it begins with the character that it primarily begins with. If you remember in John 20, Jesus goes to his disciples later in that chapter and it says that he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit and sends them out. The Christian teacher enters schools fills with the power, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and recognizes their first and primary weapon in this war is prayer. And the beauty of this is this. Um, when you walk into a school that, is, that students are on many different levels, it is very important that you understand as a teacher, I am not personally responsible for making sure every single child ends this year at the same academic level. God is the one who is responsible, and I can work and teach in that freedom of recognizing that I'll come in here and I can, um, my work is to pray my work is to um, recognize that I don't have to put all of the pressure on, of these students onto myself and that I can do the very best job I can and I can leave the results up to God. And the beauty of that is, is that now teachers can teach with a sense of freedom and not with a sense of overwhelming stress um, that actually um, destroys their ability to teach with freedom and creativity. So character matters deeply. Second thing that matters, I believe, is this idea of community, that community matters. In, in our city schools, 20% of teachers leave in one year, and in, in our city's high schools, more than 50, 59% of teachers leave within three years. It is very difficult for students to get an equal and quality education when teachers are staying one, two, and three years. We believe one of the primary reasons teachers leave so quickly is because of a lack of community and a lack of support. Um, think about redemption. Jesus Christ exists in a trinity, a community. He came to earth to institute redemption through a community of disciples. 
He builds um, his strategy through the church, a community, and empowers them with his Holy Spirit. We believe it's absolutely essential for progress to be made that teachers teach in community. Um, one of the things that we try to do at MTR is we bring in a, a class or a group of teachers every year and we build deeply into that class a sense of, it's so corny, but it is a sense of team and family, esprit de corps. We're not looking to train individual silos of excellence. We're, we're tr we are training groups of people who are coming to work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, in common mission for a goal of displaying the greatness of God and what the king coming kingdom of God is going to look like through excellent teaching. And when teachers can then have the support of one another, it allows them to stay, um, it allows them to flourish in schools and stay much longer in schools. That's the second thing. The third thing that we think matters deeply is. Um, I don't know, I was trying to think of a C word, um, but we think critical mass matters. And so, um, uh, yeah, we don't have time for, for this. Um, our vision is this idea of restored communities living with dignity and in peace. Uh, our mission is Christian love expressed in equal education. And so here's what, um, here's what we're talking about when we say critical mass matters. We believe a child to have um, the ability to have equal education to any child in Memphis. We think that child has to have a great teacher, not just one year, not just two years, but every year, kindergarten through 12th grade. And so the way to create critical mass is not to prepare teachers and have them go just anywhere, but the way to, the way to create critical mass is to identify pockets, identify communities, identify neighborhoods, and work to provide a teacher in every classroom from kindergarten through 12th grade. So we've identified six neighborhoods, four original neighborhoods, and two recently. The four in the middle are Graham, in green is Graham Heights, the red is Mitchell Heights, Graham Heights would be the Kingsbury feeder pattern. Mitchell Heights would be the Treadwell feeder pattern. The blue in the very middle is Binghampton. That's Brewster, Lester, and East. And the orange below there is Orange Mound, which would be, of course, the Melrose feeder pattern. Just in the last few months, we've begun to partner with two new neighborhoods. In the bottom, the purple is the Alsea Ball neighborhood, which is the Hamilton neighborhood. And up north, the big city in yellow up there is um, Frazier, uh, which, um, which builds to Fraser High School, which is now known as MLK Prep. And so we think um, a Christian's view of redemption, we recognize that character matters, community matters, and we recognize that critical mass matters. And so what we think is important is this idea right here, is that we work to put um, a great teacher in every class, kindergarten through 12th grade, for one particular feeder pattern, or said differently, we want to say to, Kings, to um, uh, Graham Heights neighborhood, we want to say to Graham Heights that a child growing up in Graham Heights can have the exact same quality of education as children that are growing up in the White Station neighborhood or children that are growing up in the Houston High School neighborhood. Sounds crazy, but guess what? God does the crazy. He does the impossible. And we think the strategy to do that is to train people to build a sense of community with one another and then send them out into schools and not just into any school, but into feeder patterns that serve a particular neighborhood. And so after f five years of placing teachers, uh, we have 48 teachers now in, in the Kingsbury feeder pattern. Uh, this year, for the first time, we've actually begun to partner with Berkeley, which I know is a, a partner with Second Presbyterian. If you want to know what that looks like, that's what it looks like. Those are all of our teachers that are teaching. Well, not everybody showed up to this event, but um, that's what 50, roughly 50 teachers teaching in Graham Heights looks like. 
Um, another neighborhood I know you're um, very familiar with and involved with is the Orange Mound neighborhood. Uh, after five years, we have 65 teachers now teaching in Orange Mound. Uh, 24 of those teachers are at Hanley Elementary. Uh, and this year we've got uh, 11 at Melrose High and 17 at Sherwood Elementary. And so what we, would, what we would like to think over time is that we can offer, we can just come alongside the other great teachers that happen to be in that neighborhood and say, um, we'd, like to, we'd like to bring um, people of great character that have been trained, that are a part of a family, to come into the neighborhood of Orange Mound and to make sure as a response to the gospel mandate to love our neighbors as ourselves, that Orange Mound will have the highest quality of education as any neighborhood in the city which I think is what Jesus demonstrated to us when he appeared to Mary for the very first time as he was raised from the dead. Um, I want to close with a little um, music and a, and a slideshow because um, you know, Martin Luther King wrote it in the end of his uh, letter from Birmingham jail. It says, one day the South will recognize its true heroes. Um, these people we're going to look at, are, I think, are, are true heroes. It's the students in these schools and the teachers that are in these schools. Um, and there's a, there's a great anthem. Uh, you know, they would say that uh, Martin Luther King once said that, um, that uh, hymns are the soul of a movement. And the hymn of the civil rights movement was a song called We Shall Overcome. And, of course, that's the story of redemption, right? One day we will overcome. And we'll overcome in heaven. And until we overcome perfectly in the kingdom, we work today to make our cities look like the kingdom that is to come. We won't overcome fully until that final day. But until that day comes, that is our mandate. That is our role. And so uh, in our last five minutes here, um, I want to give you a, a picture and insight into these schools to see the children that are in them, which are the real heroes, right, that are, that are fighting every day sometimes just for meals, and sometimes certainly to learn. And I want you to see pictures of, of real people that are, doing, that are doing the real and hard work. Some of them you'll, you'll recognize because some of them are, are members of this church. Um, we'll show this afterwards. I'll close out with a benediction. Church of Jesus Christ, um, we will overcome. We have overcome. And... And one day we get to enjoy that in full with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. And everything that we do on this earth will be worth it that we offer to him. And until that day, this is the work of the Christian to love and honor Jesus Christ and to serve the common good beginning with the least and the marginalized. Um, I'm grateful for the role that Second Presbyterian Church plays in that, and I'm grateful for how I've learned that through um, your witness here at Second Press. Um, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for this church teaching me that exact lesson. So thank you, and God bless you. Thanks for being here.